0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Raw Show with Michael McDonald. I have a very special guest. We have Jennifer Georgeson joining me today. Jen, thanks for being a guest on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Jennifer is the CEO and founder of So Just Shop. She has extensive experience in both not for profit and for profit because she helps people in the most vulnerable communities all around the world. And Just Shop is an accessories, homework, and gifting marketplace. So, it's very, very interesting to see which direction we'll take when it comes to for profit and not for profit. So, Jen, could you share with us a bit about yourself? So, where you were born and what it was like for you growing up?
1: Uh, so I was born, um, despite my accent, uh, I was born in Honiton in Devon, um, but my family are all from Liverpool, and I spent my childhood moving around a lot. So um, we, i lived in Scotland, I've lived in the Midlands, I've lived in the South, mainly all in the UK. Um, and then I went to university in Leicester, and then I did a master's in um, London, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, and from there, I got a job with um, the Institute of Child Health. Um, and I went out to work in Zambia, um, in Africa, for a number of years looking at mother to child transmission projects. Um, so, how HIV was transmitted between um, mother and children through breast milk. Um, And whilst I was doing that project, I also did a part-time PhD with University College London. Um, So I did that. And from there, um, I finished that. Um, And it was was a very difficult time because it was the height of the uh, HIV epidemic in Africa. And at that point in time, there was very little medication available for people. Um, so it was very very challenging working in very difficult health conditions with at the time Zambia was extremely poor um, and many of the doctors had left the country or themselves being affected by the epidemic along with many of the nurses so it was quite an extreme environment to work in um, but saying that it was also I was very privileged to be able to do what little I could and to get to know quite a wonderful country at the same time Um, and when I finished that because a lot of the background of the work was project management and also I was doing a lot of epidemiology which is population statistics um, I then came back to the UK and I needed a little bit of a break um, so I got a job with a startup, and just to date it, this was an internet accelerator that worked on dial-up. Um right. so, Yeah. So, so that was in, that was in 2004, Oof. and I worked for them for a few years, and um, I actually project managed their float on the London Stock Exchange. Um, and then off the back of that, I then... Um, they gave me a bonus and I started a small not-for-profit with two other colleagues. Um, One of the things that we found very frustrating when we were working um, in many countries that were specifically affected by epidemics was that, you know, the big charities would come swooping in um, and often they, they were fabulous because they had all of the support. But what happened was the wages rose. Uh, so all of the um, not-for-profit charity workers that were working uh, for local organizations then left um, to work for the larger organizations. And the local organizations were drained of finances. And often they had the most expertise because they were the country. They were the community. So we started a small not-for-profit where we um, got small pot small pots of money, and we'd help them do some um, preliminary investigative research that they could then use to apply for bigger grants of money and in some way try and compete with the bigger guys. Um, so I, I was doing that um, part-time whilst working for a few years, and we worked in Pakistan in northwestern frontier province, what was then northwestern frontier province, which is Peshawar. We worked with an amazing organization called Quindicor, um, who worked a lot on girl child education and also on training of traditional birth attendants. Um, it was right in Taliban territory, and it was around the time that many of the fighters that had been fighting in Afghanistan then came home to um, Pakistan because the tribal communities crossed over the borders between pakistan and, and um afghanistan um and we w- we were working on a project with them um and then one day the taliban just came in to the village and said no you just need to stop now and you need to leave. yeah uh, so understand I, mean, I wasn't there this was the amazing women on the ground that do all this work, so right. they left. So we, we stopped working in Pakistan. <laughs> uh, but we had an ongoing, a long project ongoing in India, in, in the slums of Mumbai, looking at prevention of early childhood malnutrition. Um, and in the meantime, I got a job with the Clinton Foundation in India. So I was a program director for them there. Um, and one of the reasons I worked with the Clinton Foundation is when I was in Zambia, to treat HIV cost around $100 a month. So even if you were middle class, it was really quite unaffordable. Um, And certainly if you were poor, there was no way you could afford that. When um, President Clinton left office, um, Nelson Mandela approached him and said, if you're going to start a foundation, could you please do something about the cost of HIV medication? So, what he did uh, was he got um, greater minds than his together, um, and they looked at what they did was they went around all the countries where they had the highest HIV epidemic, and they said to all of the ministry of health health centers there, "If you could treat everyone with HIV, what volume would you order and Based on that, they then went to some drug companies and said, "You know." if you could scale up, what price could you bring these drugs down to? So, as I said, when I was in Zambia, it was hundred, about a hundred dollars a month. It's now between hundred, around a hundred dollars a year. So suddenly it's an incredibly treatable disease. Yeah. And, and that was one of the main reasons I worked for them because I thought, you know, what they did bringing that uh, business mindset to a public health problem, really changed, um, it changed the playing fields, completely, completely changed it. And you can see that now across public health, certainly with the work that the Gates Foundation are doing as well. It's really changing how public health is viewed and how public health is treated. Um, so that was one of the reasons that I went to work for the Clinton Foundation and we were working on a public private partnership between the indian ministry of health and um the school and the nurse the nurses in india and yale school of nursing and we were looking at how we can train nurses to be able to provide basic levels of treatment in situations where there aren't any doctors and So that was that, but at the same time, I was still doing this work um, where we were working in the slums of Mumbai and looking at preventing early childhood malnutrition. And what we, what's very well known is that if you can catch a child before the age of two and they have chronic malnutrition and you can fix it then, you're sorted. I think with a lot of things with child health, particularly, emotional and physical. If you can make changes before they hit the age of two, then you can have a a huge impact. After the age of two, there's a real detrimental effect. So if a child still suffers from chronic malnutrition after the age of two, they will never reach their physical or mental potential. They'll be stunted, they'll be shorter, and they won't be as bright as they could be. So what we were looking at specifically is whether we could um, target those children that had chronic malnutrition and work with um, their families to see if we could make a difference. So in India, actually, acute malnutrition is pretty well treated, and that's the sort of malnutrition that you would see on the news in a famine scenario. Chronic malnutrition is a really poorly diagnosed issue, and in the communities we were working in, Uh, it affected about um, 70% of the girl children and 30% of the boy children. Um, So we were working with the mothers and we were looking at cooking classes, you know, what budgets they had. We were looking at um, making sure the children are vaccinated so they knew where to go for the free clinics. Um, We were were looking at, you know, basic hygiene issues and treatment issues around stomach bugs. Um, And whilst the women's education level was increasing, actually the difference in the child was negligible. We couldn't see anything. And then, you know, after running this program for a year or so, we sat the women down and said, well, okay, so let's just go through a tick box of what are you doing? So are you feeding your child five small meals a day? And they said, well, when we're at home, Okay, let's just backtrack on this. What do you mean when we're at home? Well, if we're working, we can't always take the children with us. So many of these women were working in illegal or semi-legal work. They just couldn't take the children with them. So they would often leave their two-year-old child with the next oldest child, who may only be four or five, um, and a packet of biscuits, and they may be gone for many, many hours of a day. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I mean, it's not an indictment on their motherhood. It's just no. an indictment on a society where there's no fail safe, there's no support network there. Um, so we then on the back of that started a couple of creches, um, which we also did early child education and the difference was amazing. You know, literally within three months we were seeing children that suffered chronic malnutrition for years, years, coming out with normal height and weight and it it was amazing, Um, but it really stumped me because in a society like India, there's no way a government could afford to roll that out countrywide it just doesn't have the finances to do it. So then how would it work? The only way it will work is if it's partly subsidized or partly sponsored, uh, or if the families themselves are in some way paying. And this is really where So Just Shock first came about. So it was the fact that if we could get money to the women, women are far more likely to then spend that money on their child's education, on their child's healthcare, than their husbands. Around 90% of money that women earn tends to stay within the community and within the family, uh, whereas only about 50% of the money men earn is. So how do we change that dynamic? How do we get 51% of the world's population working on a more, equitable and equal basis um, how do we economically empower women um, because if we do we're going to solve an awful lot of problems around child health care and child education um, so yes yeah, so that that was where <laughs> so just shot really came about was me going right i want to do something that can economically empower women get money directly into the hands of women because if it gets into the hands of women i know that's safe you know, I know there's going to be a really positive downward impact. Um, I want it to be global, to work anywhere, and I want it to be scalable. But I just didn't know what it was. So that those were my first thoughts, which was around, you know, in 2011, it was like, okay, that's what I want to do. No idea how I'm going to do it. Um, And I came back to the UK. And I started working with my uh, old boss who did the dial-up startup because he is a he starts a number of different businesses and i said are you starting up a business so yes i said great. could i do it for you so i can learn you know about how to do a startup and it was quite a technical startup he was doing he was looking at um employee benefits and communications all through a mobile app so it was you know relatively technical lots of technical sides to it but he was also you know raising money and setting up the operations side so I was the operations director um, which was you know an amazing experience for me because I really learned from the bottom up how you do a startup albeit the fact that his startup was far Far better funded than mining. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think when you know when you when you when you bought and sold and built businesses up to the ground, I think the last business he sold and it went for nearly a hundred million. You know he's in a right, very yeah. situation to me. <laughs> um, and it was then when I was doing that that I saw. You know this is debt. I remember I was out of the country for a number of years, but I saw not on the high street and I saw you yes. know a marketplace and lots of different businesses signing up. And I thought, that's, that's how we could do it. That's, that's basically how we can do it. Um, most women, wherever they are in the world, um, no matter how impoverished and how little education, generally have some form of handicraft skills. And not only that, but often these handicraft skills are much undervalued and they're not known about. Um, and, they, and if we could work with them, incorporate those traditional skills but give it a contemporary edge then we could have a really nice audience for the products they'll sell them directly to an international market which means the markups they'll get for the products will be a lot lot more Um, and you know the international market would be seeing a whole range of products um, that they wouldn't normally get to look at so that's really where so just shop came about um, and then as you do, everything just keeps building on top of it. One of the problems um, that I have found, I'm banging my head against a brick wall a lot, is the concept of what is ethical, what's ethical fashion, how something is uh, made.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, I've, you know, I'm constantly, whenever I meet organizations and they go, oh, this is an ethically made jacket or something. i go, well, how, how do you track the supply chain? How do you know someone's paid? How do you know? And I'm there with a whole list of questions and they look at me blankly and go, "Uh, give a pound to charity of every jacket that's sold. It's like, no, 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 no. that's not good enough. So we face two problems with what we're doing is one, how do we make sure that the supply chain is completely transparent? Um, and it's not just about the women that are working there, but also, are we using the right materials? Are they sustainable? Could they be recycled? Could they be reused? I know, you know, do we know the animals are being cared for? So we, we make, uh, we have pashminas um, that are made by an amazing group of Tibetan refugees in the Himalayas. Um, we know specifically which goat the wool comes from we know how well those goats get looked after and that's really important to us along with everything else but also the important thing for me is if i want this to be scalable right now i know most of the women-led artisans that we have on board so i know i pretty you know we're small enough that i can know they're being paid or if they're not i'll hear about it but if we go to scale, which is what we want, how are we going to know that one lady in rural Madhya Pradesh or one lady in, you know, rural Colombia is being paid? Not just is she being paid, but is she being paid a living wage? Is there no one who's underage working there? Um, Are they not being forced to work too many hours? What are the working conditions like? So that's a whole aspect that we're now developing on the technical side, which is to build this transparent supply chain, but also uh, to work with the businesses so we can also know who's being paid, when they're being paid, that they're being consistently paid, that their working conditions are good. Um, And we're using a lot of block chain technology for that as well and then the third point is a lot of the women that we work with or we want to work with don't have bank accounts ah uh. so how do you get around that that aspect so we're yeah. also looking to pay them via mobile phone credits so just as in the uk if you are pay as you go and you want to top up you go down to the news agents and give them 10 pounds and they give you you know 10 pounds worth of credit on your phone somewhere like kenya you can do the opposite so I can pay someone a mobile phone credit and they can go to the shop and the shop will then give them the money out in cash.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So uh, that's, um, that's really where, where that's brought you up to date.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I kind of need to ask, I guess, <laughs> is... How did you manage your time when you were doing so many things at once? What sort of strategies did you have to use? Did you have to, you know, balance everything out? Was your diary all over the place? Did you do whatever you could do just at that time and you managed to get everything done? I mean, how, how did you cope with everything from doing the start-up, working with the Clinton Foundation and then trying to, you know, try and figure out, you know, everything else? I'm assuming you you, you ate as well, but you had to sort out yeah. your own stuff and you had to sleep as well I'd imagine you you know there were only so many hours in the day so what was your like daylight when you tried to manage everything?
1: Well when I was out in India and I was working with the Clinton Foundation and we were also doing the not-for-profit that wasn't too bad I mean quite I probably you know I I was working in Delhi um, I'd probably fly over to Mumbai where the project was every couple of weeks and you know I'd, I'd work the weekend and I'd be the Clinton Foundation anyway the you know how uh, crazy American businesses are, so they, they had expectations that you know quite often I 'd be on a conference call either at 4:30 in the morning or at 10:30 at night. So <laughs> that kind of got me into um, a more flexible way of working, shall we say. Um, I then added the additional complexity as I'm also a single mum, so that's a nice thing. you know, do a startup and be a single mom it's all good (laughs) so (laughs) but saying that you know the fact that i am a startup and it is my business it does build in a level of flexibility there so it means that i can drop my son off to school every morning um and you know he's in after school clubs um but you know when I pick him up I can spend time with him till he goes to bed and then I'll probably work for a couple of hours after that um things that I do always build in though that I have to I have to is exercise um so every Wednesday morning after I drop my son off to school I go and do pilates every Friday I go and do an hour's tennis because if I am not uh physically fit a you know we do a lot of trade shows so i'm lifting boxes all the time um secondly i need it for my own mental well-being because otherwise i don't sleep um very well so i do make sure i that i carve out that time because i think you know looking after my mental and physical health is imperative not just for me and not just for my son but also for the business Um, in terms of how I fit everything in, honestly, I don't know. (laughs) Some days, (laughs) some days I I nail it, but some days like it's, I'm so bloody efficient. It's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, I can't believe I've done all this. And other days I just feel like I'm waiting and I'm not getting anywhere at all. Um, when I'm having those days, um, and when I look at my inbox and it's over 200 urgent messages to deal with, <laughs> um, that's when I, what, I, what I then try and do is uh, I will literally 15-minute task myself. So I will spend half an hour in the morning laying out my diary and I give myself 15 minutes to do tasks. And I'll literally plan it in my diary um, for the whole day, 15-minute tasks. So four tasks an hour for, you know, eight, 10 hours. Um, that does tend to focus me a lot more and it, and it does tend to help. I find, um, what I struggle with is having the time, giving myself the time to be able to think about the bigger picture. And sometimes I think every startup needs that is that you need to take time, step away from the day-to-day running and actually think about, where do I want to be in a year? Where do I want to be in two years? Where do I want to be in five years? Now I'm great with financials. I can sit there and rattle off where I want the financials to be in two years and five years, but you have to think about the vision of the business as well. Um, And that. I find that I do, I don't prioritise that enough, and it should
0: be, I think it should be. What's the, what's the the overriding aim of Just So Shop then, because it seemed like it started off, like you're trying to, to help people, like there's this idea of, you know working together to try to help people fund the, the medication for HIV that that seems to be how that, that all started off was I right in saying that
1: no well no I suppose it, it started off with um can I just correct you it's it's yeah um, yeah. it's so just shop not uh, okay it's a very English um thing that people do and I think it's because of the just so stories and everybody just has that in their mind it's so just shop and um, it wasn't Um, to finance HIV it was to try and um, if we economically empower women then the difference it can have on the life of and the health and the education of the children and the community and themselves so it's really looking at that as an impact it's trying to get um, women who don't who currently don't have an economic voice in a society to have that voice and have that say where the money is spent because if you get money into the hands of the women they're far more likely to spend it on sending their children to school and on feeding their children decent nutritional food and on accessing healthcare for themselves as well as their children um so that's really the premise of it um so we're an impact business we are for profit i mean we're not quite at break even yet, but when we will be, we will be for profit. Um, and that's very important to me because I think as a for-profit business, um, you're a, you're freer to make choices of where you think the best way the business will go. Um, but we are an impact business, so what that means is that we measure not just the profit we make, but also the impact we have on the community as well. Um so, you know, we work many of the businesses we work with have um they have many different strings to their bone. So for example, uh we've just launched our own brand of jewellery and in doing that uh we've been in quite a special position where we've worked with a partner who has said who said to us, well actually you know what, jewellery making is a man's trade. And so it's only men that will work on this. And we said, well, if you want to work with us, then actually what we want you to do is to train some women in this trade and to have that apprenticeship and have the women make the jewelry. And they said, okay, which is amazing. So not only do we have some beautiful jewelry, but we've also taught, we've reached out and expanded the skills um that we've had so so these women are now earning more money than they would have done because they've been trained in jewelry making we've had we had another group that we work with who also do um education training there and they they were running literacy projects and there was one lady Um, who was working with them who it used to take her an hour to get to work every day because she couldn't get a bus because she couldn't read the bus signs but she didn't want to ask anyone because she didn't want to admit that she couldn't read Um, and so not only has she been taught to read and it now takes her 20 minutes to get to work every day um, but also it's given her such a sense of self and self-empowerment that when the local councillor in the village wanted to spend some money, had some money to spare, to spend. And I'm not sure what he wanted to spend it on, but she actually got all the women of the village together to lobby him, to put um, safe toilets in the village, public toilets in the village. Um, And she wouldn't have done that had she not, you know, had the strength that she, that came from not just earning a decent salary, but also learning to read and feeling that her place in society had increased and that her voice was worthy of hearing so these are all the impacts that we have which is an amazing privilege for me to hear Um, but it's also i suppose from my point of view by chance i was born in the uk um, and i got free education and i got free healthcare and um I haven't come from a privileged background in any way, shape or form. But even then, you know, I still managed to go to university. Um, I've still managed to get a PhD. Um, and, and I managed to do all these things because I was born in the UK. Um, these women, because of the circumstance, many of the women we work with because of the circumstances of where they were born will never, will never have, never have that so if we can just a little bit level the playing field for them then I think that would be an amazing thing to do
0: yeah I, I quite like the way you you phrase that I mean it's um it, I guess the, the the feeling that you would get as well like the satisfaction the fulfillment I think that's probably I mean just from my own experience is that that's probably why you, you monitor so much so mm-hmm. that you sort of get that the the feel good feeling if you will of I know exactly where this is all coming from I know exactly who's doing what I know how much they're getting paid I know that they are getting paid more than probably what their livable wage is which is I guess part of the idea as well like you know you, you don't want to pay them the bare minimum because then that's still not really really raising their standard if they're just about able to to get by you know so is probably an element of that in there as well and then at, at the end you probably get the well i know exactly the full process of doing this and the result is still amazing and people are still prepared to buy it which yes. you know i mean from someone that That does run businesses as well I guess like for some people go oh it's a lot of hard work to do all those things but it's hard work that if anything it gives you more satisfaction because of the work rather than having that big disconnect from from doing those things one of the things that stands out for me and people that are listening might be like oh I'd be interested to know this would be how do you measure the impact, what sort of metrics do you use? Is it like a, a smile from someone? Is it people reporting back? Is it job satisfaction? All those sorts of things. How do you how do you actually try to, to figure out how much impact you're, you're making?
1: So actually this is part of what we're, so initially, um, and again, you know, we're, we're a startup, we don't have lots of money, so I can't spend what little money the business has um traveling around the world Um, so um, initially a lot of it is just on you know directly asking the women and getting quotes from the women getting an understanding of where they're working and talking to them we quite often whatsapp them whatsapp's amazing for stuff like that i can you know whatsapp you know some uh, you know all of these different groups of women that live all across the world and i can see how they're living and I can see how they're working and it's it's just amazing. Um, so a lot of it was anecdotal initially, that doesn't sit well with me in my academic background. So one of the things that we're trying to build in at the moment to our monitoring side is, um, you know, very factual information, like um, are you being paid? So not a minimum wage, but a living wage. Um, so that's quite important, you know, talk what extracurricular activities are built into the programme. You know, if you are women focused, do you have creches there for your children? What do the creches provide? So we're really trying to get a lot firmer with the information we're gathering um, and a lot less anecdotal about it. Um, And then once we have um, that baseline information, Um, we'll then be able to compare it to other organizations and to then almost do a quality of life assessment but that those those are longer term plans.
0: It sounds like I mean particularly if if that's your your goal anyway I quite like the way that you're actually trying to to go deeper into it rather than just sort of accept the anecdote side you are trying to create things that are or more measurable. So yeah, I quite like that. What's the, what's the future with this then? Because you've got people that you're actually training in certain trades now to help empower the women as well. And it's like you've gone from one sort of concept or idea, and then you're going right. Well, what else can we do? And what else c- can we do? And, and how many other things can we do? And maybe we can do this. And or can we hire people? And can we train people? And can we, I don't know. I mean, where's where it all heading?
1: Well. Right now it's heading for me trying to get some investment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'm trying to do at the moment, which we're, we're just about that is if I can make um, the website, the customer facing side um, positive in revenue generating, then that frees us up to raise investment for the more technical side where we can start um, collating and getting a lot more in depth on um, almost certifying companies so being able to go in and actually know on a real time quite dynamic level that people are being paid and how they're being paid and what their working conditions are um that side of things is um is very important to me and i think it will become far more important i was asked this question the other day and they were saying what do you think the future of sustainable fashion is and i was saying i think it's going to become standard so it's going to be in a few years i think you'll see i mean you're already starting to see some legislation coming through now and i think the issues that are raised with the amount of energy and waste and toxic byproduct that a lot of the clothing industry has i think more and more it's going to become expected of companies that they have a sustainable ethos and that they are prepared that they can track exactly where the products are from and who's making them Um, so I think that's it that's a really important side to me is that we develop this technology so we can properly see how our women are doing um whether they're being trained how well they're being trained um and really get that level of information down because otherwise we uh, so our mission is to uh economically empower uh, well our mission is to um get 250,000 women and their children out of abject poverty by economically empowering them. So in order to do that, we're going to have to scale. But in order to scale, we need systems in place that will mean that we can monitor exactly down to each individual woman, even if there's thousands of them working for us, that we know she's being paid. Um, And she's being paid a living wage and she's not being abused and she's of a legal working age. So that's the level of granularity that we need to get down to in order to make this business scalable. Um, So and then on the business side, um, sorry, on the product side, we need to work very closely to still make sure that we've got contemporary well-designed products, and also to expand our markets. So we were we um, we were in anthropology this year. You know, we're really looking to push a bespoke range of products as well. Um, we're pushing out to retailers as well as consumers, and there's a huge appetite, I think, out there for consumers. I I love it whenever I do a lot of these fairs, and someone will pick up a bracelet, and they'll go, "Oh, this is nice." I'll go, "Oh, okay." So that's made of recycled brass and that's made by this women's group that are based in Mombasa. And you can get down to that granularity of detail with him. You can also talk through how exactly it was made and the circumstances of where these women are working. And suddenly you've got, as a consumer, you're connected to a product in a way that you never would be if you just picked up a bracelet in Claire's accessories and bought it. Um, and, So I think that then really drives um, the consumer to come back and be repeat customers for us as well, which is really important.
0: It seems like the, um, I mean, you probably able to share a bit of light on this as well, Jen, but uh, it seems like the the story behind the product can be what it leads to that connection and can be what adds to the the value of it as well. Is, Is that something you'd be able to share about?
1: Yes, I mean, it definitely does. And I think that's very important from a consumer point of view as well. So where we come from is we have a stand that the quality of the product should stand for itself and its price point should stand for itself. So people shouldn't look at a product and go, uh, I'm only going to buy it because it's got a nice story behind it. They should be able to look at a product and go, that's really nicely designed. It's a really interesting piece. And that's a price point that I'm comfortable buying it at. Um, but on top of that, we then want to provide that complete transparency of how the product was made, when it was made, who made the product, Um, the circumstances in which the material was gathered to make that product and the impact that that has on the story of the women behind it. So, for example, um, I can talk about we we have a lot of um, recycled brass products that are made in Mombasa in Kenya, as I was just talking about. So, you know, for someone who has a science background and really knows nothing about fashion, I'm learning an awful lot. Um, of random facts that I never thought that I would know or need to know. So, for example, now I know to Go do on. to do a brass moulding, it's often done in a sand mould, right? Actually, a sea sand mould. So, sand where you've got uh, that's been collected from the seaside, quite literally from a beach, uh, tends to hold the mould much stronger than if you have sand. Um, with just normal water added, so the fact that they are working in Mombasa, which is right by the seaside, means that their moulds tend to hold a lot better. Um, but it also means you get quite unique dimpling effect on many of the um, jewellery. So it makes for a really interesting product. Um, the women's group that make it are they're a disabled women's cooperative. So they take uh, women who. Um, have always been disabled or have become disabled due to accidents or other reasons um and they will train them in jewelry making and what's amazing about it as well is they have a creche on site for all of their children so it's a safe environment to bring their children as well to work um so you know you're already at a disadvantage being a woman but to then be disabled as well can have a huge impact on your life and your value within a community and yeah there was one lady we were working with and um she was able-bodied she was a she was a cleaner she used to clean a number of houses um really barely getting by barely getting by and then there was an explosion that happened in a factory nearby where she was working and she ended up um losing her hearing um and it And she ended up losing her job because of it. Um, Anyway, she was taken in by this organisation and they um, trained her and she's amazing at the jewellery work she does. She's amazing. She's now one of the lead jewellery makers. She she used to be, you know, um, in inverted commas, a burden on her family, which meant her family had to look after her. When her sister um, went into um, kidney failure, she could afford to send her sister to India to um, have treatment and end up having a kidney replacement. Um, So she was in a position where she could barely even feed herself to being able to send her sister for emergency medical treatment. And that's really the, the, you know, so you tell someone, not only is that a beautiful bracelet and it's really well made, but you know about the lady who made it. And it's just, you know, all of this adds up to a very positive connection and the reason why people want to buy our products.
0: How, how do you feel as the, the person that owns this company when, when you hear stories like that?
1: I, I feel incredibly privileged. I mean, I, I do spend my day being very stressed. I'm constantly stressed about cash flow. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm constantly worried about, okay, I don't take enough time to stand still and look at how much we have managed to achieve. Um, but when I do, and when I hear these stories, um, it just reinforces the reason why Soja Shops here and why it exists. Um, and you, I just think how privileged am I to be in a position where I can choose to do this. Um, yeah, and it doesn't get much better than that other than, you know, cash flow issues. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes I guess it just depends on on what kind of means that it's okay to to have that issue. Like, it, you could be struggling with the cash flow, but, you know, if, if all of the stories make it worth it to you, then, you know, I'd imagine a part of it's justifiable, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think any new business has cash flow problems um, but i do think you know it is quite important and it's very important that i have this in my mind is you know this is not a charity this is a for profit business we are a startup and we are trying to do lots of different things which means it will take us time to get to break even when we're we're almost at but ultimately we have to make this business work because if we don't make this business work it doesn't matter how many amazing stories I have we're not going to be able to carry on doing it so if if we can be really tight if we can uh, you know really push the sales if we can think about different ways of revenue generating Um, If we can, you know, looking at getting investors on to do the tech development, we have to make this business a commercially successful, viable business. Because if we can do that, then there are so many people whose lives that we can have that positive impact on. But we have to, you know, we have to get to that point where we can do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it seems like you're on a bit of a mission, Jen. It seems like you're on a... Mission that I guess a lot of people would be either very very glad that you're the person doing it, or at least happy that you're actually the person doing it. Like there are there are people out there trying to do these things. It's not like it's it's an issue. It's a concern, and there's no one doing it. You're someone that's actually going out there and trying to help and trying to to make the impact and at least at very very least play your part so I just thought I'd take a bit of a bit of time to acknowledge you for that really Jen and to say you know actually keep up the good work because I think it's something that a lot of people do need
1: thank you thank you very much
0: if someone wanted to find out a bit more about yourself Jen and so just shop make sure we'll get that the right way around where can people go to find out more
1: so you can go to our website, which is www.sojustshop.com. Um com, or um, you can find us on Instagram. We're at So Just Shop Accessories, or my Instagram is at jc underscore georgeson. That's G E O R G E S O N. Um, And you can contact us through the website and sign up for our mailing list as well. So we send out emails every couple of weeks and we talk about the products, but we also talk about the business and we also talk about the women who make the products as well. So they're nice little stories to get in your inbox.
0: Good stuff. Well, hopefully there'll be people listening that are feeling at least somewhat inspired by the work that you're doing and will reach out or at least join the people that are at least, trying to contribute to that as well so yeah it's something that I'm sure people will be happy to support you on one last question for you just before we go Jen and I ask all my guests this so we've had funny answers to serious answers to answers that have completely nothing really to do with what we've spoken about so we we open the door wide open on this one and it's what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know
1: oh I don't know <laughs> I haven't thought about that um I don't i I suppose uh, ultimately I'm quite a private person I've had to put myself front and center for the business um but it's not uh, a situation that I thought I'd Necessarily being so, I don't know if I'm particularly in the world to know any more about me. <laughs> That's
0: all right. I mean, we've. If, if, I mean, the the first time I ever asked this, uh, the first guest I had, she was like, "Oh well, uh, I, I like chocolate cake. If I've had something that'll <laughs> go well. I was like, "Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be like serious. I mean." Yeah. I've got a couple answers, but you know, every time someone asks the question and you give an answer, you then can't really say the same thing. Yeah. So you've got to come up with something different each time. So you know, it doesn't doesn't have to be like anything too personal.
1: Um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose the biggest driver I have, um, and that I would wish upon as many people as possible, is just that constant need to try and level the playing field and make the world a bit more fairer. And if we all stood up and did that a bit more, um, then I think the world would be a much happier place. (laughs) But I don't know whether that's something that people, they probably already know that about me.
0: (laughs) that 's all right it's, uh, It seems a very 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 good way to end Jen, so for those of you that are listening, make sure you subscribe and check out jen 's podcast as well as a lot of other guests that we have on the show. make sure if you do want to support Jen, make sure you check out the Instagram and the websites as well that 's something that I think I will probably take some time and and check out to see how I can do my bit as well. Jen, thanks for being a guest on the show. I appreciate you carving out the time and I'm sure we'll keep in touch.
1: Thank you.